0: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm really honored to have you join me um, today uh, for this episode, and those of you who join me every week, I thank you for the comments that I, I hear back from time to time from the listeners, and uh, please remember when you email me to give me a, a bit of time to respond and acknowledge your email because we are in the middle of the legislative session, and so I'm out of the office a good part of at least two days during the week down at the Capitol, talking to legislators, trying to help them understand what's going on, and then trying to help redraft bra- bills and amendments to bills. So my, my time gets really compressed here uh, for the next several weeks, a couple of months. So, but uh, I do love to hear from you and, and thank you for that. And just be patient about uh, my replies. What today I'm going to cover, maybe a bit of a mind-bender for some. I know it was for me when I first heard some of what I'm going to cover today back in early November of 2021. And I know it was about that time because of the date of an episode of Chalk Knox Unplugged that aired on November 5th. You can find it at the Chalk Knocks Unplugged platforms for podcasts. And I'm going to be weaving some material from that episode in today's podcast as we continue to think about dominion and how we do law and politics. But before I get there, I want to make a comment about dominion, because that word scares a number of people, including a very committed, faithful, Bible-believing, conservative Christians. Uh, for example, several years ago, I met with a PCA minister I highly respect. He was reviewing my first book on politics and loving God, and uh, he really liked the book. But as we talked about the chapter on theonomy, which he thought was fine and good and great, uh, he said, just just be careful with those who talk a lot about the dominion mandate, the dominionist, I guess you could say. And at the time, I, I didn't really understand why, because I knew he believed that the Scripture said that Adam was to exercise dominion, right? So um, I, I didn't ask him why he said that, but I suspect it's because some uh, who might go by that title, um, or, that, or at least in his mind, have gone about the dominion mandate badly. Perhaps, as I said last week, they go about it like we live in a machine cosmos, a mechanistic cosmos, that you can just change out politicians and laws and righteousness that exalts a nation gets churned out, just like the donut machine at, you know, Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts, you know, just put the stuff in the machine and out it comes, right? And and to be honest, I once thought along those lines, so I, I get it. And I have friends who think along those lines, and some of them, unfortunately, think I don't care about growing the kingdom of God or seeing the kingdom of God expand. And to be honest, it it kind of shocks me a bit, uh, given the thirty years I've spent in politics and what I've worked to try to accomplish. But what is really at issue between us is whether, or I should say, is not whether a person wants to see the kingdom of God expand but how that kingdom of God is to expand. And I hope you're beginning to see over the last few episodes, perhaps over the last year or two, that the how depends on what kind of place you think this is and how it works. How you go about it depends on your cosmology. And today we're going to delve a bit more into that matter. But the word dominion, also strikes terror on the on the minds and hearts and lips of a lot of non-christians in fact probably most non-christians and that's because their cosmology tells them the kind of place we live is a machine it is a mechanistic cosmos they've bought into evolutionary thinking where everything is determined by laws of of, of nature and power and so If we get control of the knobs and levers of power, well, we'll be back to collecting taxes to support favored churches and who knows what all in their minds. So when we approach law and politics as if it is all a matter of power, we naturally feed that fear in them. And to be honest, I think that approach undermines the gospel because nothing in this cosmos is about our power, but the power of God. The gospel, the Apostle Paul says in Romans First chapter is the power of God unto salvation. And that must be because we're entirely contingent and dependent beings. There is no power, there is no life in us apart from the moment-to-moment sustaining of us by the Spirit of God. So, I, I think that's really what was in the back of that mind of the minister when he cautioned me about the Dominion folks. Their hearts, their intentions are in the right place, but their how is often off because their cosmology is wrong. Anyway, uh, back to today. What I heard in 2021 has positively influenced my understanding of the Scripture and how I think of law and civil government and politics, and I hope it does the same for you, But but not just in this sphere, but in every sphere of your life. And the topic today is allegory. And next week, uh, please come back. Tell your friends about this episode, if you would, but also about next week. Because we're going to be looking at archetypes using some material recently put out by attorney Jeff Schaefer of the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College in Idaho. And I guarantee you, it will rattle you to the bone in terms of how you see our culture and how our culture thinks of law and the nature of the problem that's facing us. And I I promise you don't want to miss next week's episode. But anyway, back to today. Why talk about allegory? And what could that possibly have to do with how we think of law? And to be honest, that's a great question. And I would have had no idea 18 months ago in October of 2021. So to introduce this topic, let me play a clip from that, Knox Unplugged um, podcast that puts the matter of allegory in an important historical context. And here's how the clip begins. Uh, Jason talking about the way we should read the Bible, which we'll get to in a minute, is the answer, he's saying. So he's kind of jumping into the middle of a conversation here. It's the answer to a dispute between two different philosophical camps— over how to understand the world, how to interpret the kind of place this is. So he's starting out by saying Christianity is the answer to these two camps, and then he's going to spell out those two camps for us.
1: And so this is actually the answer to the metaphysical mistake of the ancients and the metaphysical mistake of the moderns. The ancients said that the that the that the material world was a veil; it was a trick, and you had to see the reality behind it. And that you would move away from the 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 trick of matter or the veil of matter. And the moderns say the exact opposite: that the that the biology that the physical world is the real thing, and you have to move the veil is the heavenly, and you have to see through the heavenly until you get to the reality, and then you'll move away from and through and drop the, the veil
0: in other words what jason is talking about is that ancient greeks looked at the world one way and we now look at the world a different way and the greeks wanted to move past matter this physical world it was considered polluted or profane and they wanted to move to that unseen one that was the real one uh, that was behind what we experienced in this world. Um, But what's happened now, after Kant moved God into this impenetrable supernatural or noumenal uh, world, Nietzsche and Marx and then later Freud just began to remove God from our cosmological thinking altogether, which is where we are now. God's irrelevant, and our Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment religion clauses wrongly for so long that our jurisprudence runs away from any metaphysical realities, values, or meaning, not to mention the God word. And, and that's why the first sentence in Justice Alito's opinion, reversing Roe v.ersus Wade, the Dobbs decision from June of 2022, begins with this sentence. Listen to it. Abortion presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Great good, that's right. And then he proceeds for another 78 pages, studiously avoiding anything to do with why it is a profound moral issue, before saying we just need to put that issue up to a Democratic vote among the several states and let them decide for themselves. But this is what Jason Farley said next, and I'd never heard anything like it before, and it stumped me. And I hope I can eliminate some of the confused ways that I understood it, in case it's a little confusing to you. And and this is what he says is the answer to the two positions I just mentioned, how the Bible solves this dilemma of whether reality is in some unseen, invisible spiritual world, or there is no such world, and all we have is the material world. And, um, and, and to be honest, um, this idea that, There's just this spiritual world um, is what leads many people to think that what goes on here doesn't matter. Just, you know, live our quiet, pietistic lives and move on. And, of course, the other view is uh, that this is as good as it gets, and you die and you eat worms, you know. There we go. So, anyway, this is what he said. Let me just quote it because it's so short. Whereas, meaning in contrast to those two views. The Christian understanding and the medieval understanding is that the world is an allegory. And when I heard that, I said, what? The world's an allegory? I mean, that made it sound like the world was not really real, because I thought of books I read in English class, like Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea or Atlas Shrugged or Pilgrim's Progress. They were all allegories, right? And they weren't real people. And then Jason gave a definition of allegory that actually confirmed the way I thought of allegory. And this is what he said.
1: Allegory is where you have a character or something in a story that points to something besides itself. Right. Now, In a good allegory, the, the character functions well within the story as well as a character. But then it also points to something else.
0: right? And let me just repeat it again, since it's short. So allegory is where you have a character or something in a story that points to something besides itself. Now, in a good allegory, the character functions well within the story as well as a character, but then it points to something else. Okay, so that was the old man in the sea, you know, the the big fish he wanted to catch, and the man struggling against the fish and against nature and killing him and, um, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, another character in the story that pointed to something else. But in neither of them were they stories about real people. And, and then he gave a reason for why I had never heard of the world being an allegory, and why I could not make that thought fit into my Christian thinking.
1: All of our hermeneutic texts do us a disservice by the way that we tend to talk about allegory because there were people that allegorized the scriptures in a bad way. We have thought that the problem is allegory rather than realizing that bad allegory doesn't mean allegory is bad. But also just because the Bible is not an allegory, that we have thought, therefore, we can drop allegory as a category.
0: But what I didn't pick up on in this conversation earlier about allegory and the world being an allegory is the difference between saying the world is an allegory and saying the Bible is an allegory. And... When the Bible is seen as an allegory, it allows people to dismiss so many of the stories in the Bible as factual and historical, treat them as only allegories. And, and to be honest, that infects so much Christian thinking about the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2, doesn't it? There's some kind of allegory or metaphor for truth, but the things didn't really happen the way they're laid out there, you see. so So Christians rightly moved away from treating the Bible as allegory, and not really true about facts, and we didn't have to worry about the facts because it was just pointing to some greater unseen reality. But anyway, um, Jason then begins to explain why this idea of allegory of the world, or the world being an allegory, makes sense.
1: We we have swung the other direction, but it, I, the reason we have swung the other direction is that I think we've actually lost hold of the nature of the universe that we live in. What C. S. Lewis comes to realize is that allegory is one of God's favorite modes of expression. Mm. Right. So that when he when he speaks the world into existence, that the story that he tells, the characters that he creates, the sets that he designs. Bro. are allegorical, right? So they they exist in themselves because it's a good story. It's a good allegory. They exist in themselves. The story itself exists. And it it functions like a story. It, It works well. And there's layers of meaning.
0: In other words, those things in Genesis and all the other things in the Bible did happen. They are real. They're not, as a mystic might think, or a Gnostic unreal or ephemeral or they're all caught up in some mythical unity of being in which all meaning evaporates like, like Hindus would believe. No, they are real, and they have everlasting meaning because Scripture teaches one and only one ideal for human existence, and that's eternal life. That's the promise that was held out to Adam. That's why Jesus still exists. That's why we believe in the resurrection of the body, which isn't preached very much these days anymore. And we will continue on an earth glorified and adapted for the creatures we will then be when we are like unto Jesus. But it's a real place, it's not some mist or, you know, floating around kind of thing. So, what I realized is that so many Christians have given up on general revelation for special revelation. When Paul is very clear that creation reveals the glory of God, and it's our fallenness, our captivity to the dominion of sin that pollutes our affections, our thinking, and our will that makes this revelation unclear. And moreover, the Apostle Paul uses allegory. In Galatians chapter 4, we read the story about Abraham's two sons, one born to Hagar and one to Sarah. And in both the KJV and the NSAB, we find in verse 24, this is chapter 4, Paul writing, which things are an allegory. That's so he says, I'm telling you, these things are allegorical. They have a... A deeper, they're real things, but they point to something more than what they are in a material, strictly material sense. And he uses it to explain the two covenants: the one from Sinai, the Mosaic one, and the one from the Jerusalem that's above, which is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. But we also read of Jesus using seeds being planted and dying to make a point about death. Right And resurrection. And Paul does the same thing in First Corinthians chapter 15. So here's my point as to law, and we'll get to more of this next week. But if we want to exercise dominion rightly, should we not see in the creation story how we should go about it? Was God just saying in the opening scene that gardening was a fact with no greater meaning for Adam? In relation to the command he was given to fill and subdue the earth, it just that's just a fact. But it, but it has no greater meaning to it. It's not revealing anything to us about anything. Was there no meaning to God telling him his first task was to garden and uh, garden, grow the garden? So let's let's carry this out further. What did God do in creation with respect to law? Well, he made Adam with an increated, fully developed law of his nature pertaining to how he related to God, uh, all of his thoughts, his passions, his energy, his purposes, his, his uprightness was directed towards God so that he could be in fellowship with God to carry out the task that he'd been given for the glory of God. And what was Adam to do? He was to walk by faith with respect to the one first positive law given to him. And he was wired to want to obey it. But he didn't believe God, which is what faith is. It is believing the truth about what God says. And then by analogy to Adam and how he was created with respect to law, what do we find? with the Mosaic covenant and polity. Well, we find Scripture speaking of Israel as a choice vine that God planted, which should bring back to mind the garden he planted at Eden. You see how thinking of the world as allegory, we start to see that there are layers of meaning in the first story that relate to the next story, that relate to, to everything else throughout the rest of the Scripture. I mean, where does Jesus do his work? He starts out in the wilderness, where we've been cast out of the garden, and he finishes in a garden. So Genesis 1 through 3, you might say, are telling the story of what happened, and the story of of Jesus' ministry is reversing exactly, in the words of John, destroying the works of the devil. There we go. You see how, how all of this is not just factual, and we believe it, but it has a deeper allegorical meaning pointing to something more than just the facts themselves. And so what did God do uh, under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, he gave them a fully developed, ready-to-go law for them To use, and it would have been had they kept it a witness to those outside the garden. So it's it's as if, if had Adam kept the garden and learned how to garden, he would have known how to extend Eden and beyond. And so God gives the people of Israel a grown-up law for them. And what does it say in Deuteronomy four five through eight? Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments. So see. I've given you this. I've planted you like a choice vine in my garden, and I've taught you statutes and judgments paralleling how he made Adam uh, with a fully developed law for who he is, what he is, what he's supposed to do, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And what kind of statutes that they have, which is in the law I'm setting before you today. You see, God is, is planting gardens, and he's calling us to guard and to keep the garden that he's given us in Jesus Christ, who indwells us and writes his law in our hearts as it was with Adam. And then he says, as you learn to do this well and rightly among yourselves as my as my." keeper of the garden as the choice vine that I have planted in this wilderness world, then you'll know how to go about fulfilling the task given the first Adam that's being completed by the second Adam. What a wonderful, glorious thing God has done. And the world itself is helping teach us, and God's providence, if we see it, is helping teach us about who God is and how we should live and work and exercise dominion in the world that he's made to relieve it from the curse. Well, as I said, I hope you'll join me next week because we're going to look at archetypes, and I think you're going to find that really, really important. So I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty.